And what's curious and I found surprising is that we have asked similar questions in our reader surveys. Their actual age was just shy of 70. Perceived age, because we asked, how old do you feel after a good day on the slopes? 20 years younger. So if you're 70, you know, and you, you feel that you're 50, you know, you're not going to be out buying a wheelchair. You're going to be thinking about a new pair of skis. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Got a really good interview for you today. But before we get there, please do one thing for me. Go to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter. What you are listening to right now is just a small part of the storm, which is laser focused on the world of lift served skiing all year long. You can also follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Let's talk about my partners. First up, Spot. Let's face it, if you're a skier, the risk of injury is unavoidable, meaning if we send it too hard, we're just one crash away from crushing medical expenses, not to mention less time spent on the slopes. That's why Spot partners with ski resorts like Telluride, Taos, and more to offer injury insurance with lift tickets and season passes. Spot easily integrates with any booking platform and does all the heavy lifting to ensure guests are covered on the mountain. If your guests get hurt, Spot can pay up to $25,000 of their out-of-pocket medical bills per incident with zero deductible. With Spot, skiers can focus on a full and quick recovery so they can get back in their skis and on the mountain as soon as possible. Visit stormskiing.getspot.com to partner with Spot and provide your skiers with an amazing experience while showing them that their health and safety are top priorities. A win-win for your resort and for your guests. Skiers, make sure your mountain has Spot so you can shred with peace of mind this season. Learn more at stormskiing.getspot.com that's stormskiing.getspot.com. And of course, I am still proud to partner with Mountain Gazette. Issue 196 dropped on my doorstep last month, and it is just incredible. Photo galleries exploring the Cascades, house skiing, and my home, New York City. Essays on snowboarding zen, Alaskan expeditions, and Mammoth Mountain founder Dave McCoy. There's even a little crash course on the mysterious coyote, and of course, a moving look at skiing in Afghanistan before the country fell to the Taliban. But hey, don't just listen to me. Listen to my man at Isaac underscore Gardener on Twitter. Here's what he had to say upon receiving his issue. Quote, I had heard the hype from at Stormski Journal, but this is more beautiful and even more appealing than I had imagined. Thanks at Skiing Rogi. Thanks so very much. I need this this season and for many more. And tweet, do not miss the next one. Subscribe now. 
Enter code GOHIRE-10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions over at mountaingazette.com. This code is only valid for listeners of the storm. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. Episode 72, John Weisberg, co-founder, publisher, and editor of SeniorSkiing.com. You know what rules about skiing? Yeah, I know. Everything. But one of the most underrated attributes of the sport is that it is a true lifelong pursuit. Whenever I can get away on a weekday and I see the groups of happily retired skiers booting up, I'll admit it, I'm jealous. These are the folks skiing 100 days a year, no matter the conditions, and I love them for that. I'm not there yet, but my guest today is, and he has spent the past several years building an online community that caters to what might be the most important demographic in skiing. Let's hear it. My guest today is the co-founder, publisher, and editor of SeniorSkiing.com. Launched in 2014, Senior Skiing is a virtual community and meeting place for snow enthusiasts over the age of 50. The site's email newsletter has approximately 17,000 subscribers worldwide. John Weisberg is my guest. John, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm happy. Thank you for having me. John, I want to get into senior skiing, but I have to ask, first of all, how's your ski season going so far? I know you're out in Utah, and I've been watching really jealously at the huge snowfall totals you've been getting out there. <laughs> so have you been getting out? Have you been getting some good skiing in? I Yeah, I have. I've been, uh, I'm recovering from a year, a tough past year of uh, medical issues. Mm. Uh, so I've uh, I'm reintroducing myself to the uh, to the slopes a little bit at a time, but I uh, I was skiing on Sunday at Powder Mountain uh, up near Ogden, and Beautiful. yeah, it was it was a lovely day. I'm, it was it was really nice, good snow conditions, very few people, um, really nice ski area. Uh, although it needs a lot of uh, needs a lot of development, and then last Friday I skied Alta, and nice. that was also gorgeous conditions, uh, really really nice. Uh, and you know, and I've been up at the canyons multiple times. That I call the canyons Park City Mountain <laughs> Resort, the canyon side of it, and I love. Uh, the canyon's terrain. I mean, I, I know that I've skied it for years and I, I know that terrain very well, but the crowds are just hmm. crazy. These Vail Resort crowds are insane. And, you know, uh, so be it. And after, after we get done today, I will go back up uh, to the canyons and spend you know, two and a half, three hours skiing around. So, yeah, the snow, I haven't, I haven't been, um, uh, in the past, I would just head up and go for the, for the powder and deeper the better. But uh, age and, you know, recovery is making that not uh, available to me at the moment. But, my skiing, I'm skiing very nicely. 
uh, I, I like to ski slowly. I have friends who kid me about this. <laughs> and, and I like to ski slowly and I like to ski really nice form. Um, so I've been doing that, working on that, and ah, it feels great. And what does your season look like in general, John? Do you mostly stick to Utah and bounce around there, or do you try to take some road trips and or or, or flights and go to some other places around the country? Yeah, I uh, not flights, but a typical season. And last season, because of uh, medical situations, was the first season in '67 that I did not ski. Wow. Uh, so, so typically. You know, there's the day trip, and, and as you probably know, here in Utah, to take day trips is a fair, if you live in Salt Lake City, as we do, we used to live in Park City, but now we're living in Salt Lake City, and that's an e- it's very easy to take uh, day trips. And then, you know, in the past, we would go do some trips to Colorado, um, and maybe up to Jackson or Big Sky or you know, ski around some of the areas in, uh, in Idaho. Idaho has some real gems of ski areas and not, you know, not busy. Um, the, the Utah areas that are concentrated around Salt Lake City tend to get pretty active because of, you know, the airport, the Salt Lake International Airport and the proximity to Big and Little Wood Cotton, Big and Little Cottonwood Canyons and to Park City. Uh, you know, there tends to be, tend to be a lot of, a lot of people. Um, but yeah, that's my, my typical ski season is here. Uh, you know, Colorado, maybe a few other a few other locations. And when did you start skiing, John? When I was 10 years old. I'm now 78. <laughs> and and where, where did you start skiing when you were a kid? I grew up in Troy, New York, in upstate New York. And, uh, oh, uh, much of that was uh, done in Mount Snow and Bromley and Okemo and Magic Mountain, those southern Vermont areas when I was a kid, um, and then occasionally over to Western Massachusetts, Bosquet and the like. Um, but as I, you know, I went to college at Syracuse University. So I spent, uh, in, in those years, a lot of time skiing in central New York state. I taught at an area that was short lived, one of these upside down areas, um, for one season, but we would, my friends and I would, uh, you know, ski those areas, Song Mountain, Togaberg, Labrador, Bristol Mountain, Greek Peak. And then uh, every now and then we would head up to Snow Ridge, uh, Turin, I think called, Mm -hmm. Uh, and and then up to the Laurentians, Hill 76, Morin Heights, you know, you know, freeze our butts off, uh, you know, stay at, stay at, at friends' homes where in the toilet, after you use a toilet, you'd have to throw a handful of rock salt into the toilet bowl <laughs> to keep it from freezing. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I started to 
you know, go to Killington and Stowe. And then when I moved um, for my career down to Manhattan, uh, many, many, many weekend trips to Killington and to Stowe. Uh, you know, just lots of, of skiing up there. And actually, it's at Killington where I met my uh, my wife. Oh, nice. Yeah. Do you miss East Coast skiing at all? I know you got the Utah powder out there. I, it's, it's a whole different scene. It's a whole different ambiance. I love going out there. Still, there's something about East Coast skiing that I, I really love. I love the history. I love the grittiness of it. Do, do you ever find yourself nostalgic for any part of it? Absolutely. I, I mean, you've really you have really uh, struck a chord with that, with raising that topic. Uh, there's a guy who, <clears throat> um, who does videos, sort of kinder, gentler ski videos uh, that we use. His name is Don Birch. And mm-hmm. most, of his, most of Don's work is from East Coast ski areas, you know, Vermont, Massachusetts. I'm not sure about Massachusetts, but primarily Vermont, maybe upstate New York. And I I look at those videos and I get very nostalgic. Yeah, I would, I haven't skied in the East in decades. I would love to ski in the East again. You're right, there's the history, there's a scale to the mountains um, that is just a little bit more relatable for, for some people, I think. Um, and, you know, the architecture is uh, very comforting. Uh, there's a warmth to it. It's, it's wonderful. And I, uh, I'm impressed with, um, I can't think of his name right now, but the work that the fellow from Parlor Skis up in Boston is doing to develop the interest in backcountry skiing in uh, in New England. Uh, that's you know, I think that's well worth. It's a, it's a worthy cause. I can remember when we used to ski at Stowe. There were all of these abandoned trails that we would find uh, yeah. that would bring us out to weird places <laughs> that I might have to hitchhike back, but God, it was exciting to be in this, uh, that part of those parts of the mountain to have that kind of an experience, uh, you know, to be able to ski those ghosts of trails. Uh, it was great. It was great. And even like at, at Killington, um, at Stratton, when I, when I was a kid in summer camp, a YMCA summer camp, we used to, the big trip from the summer camp was to go hiking on the, on the, uh, the Green Trail. Green Trail? Green Mountain Trail? I forget. It's part of the Appalachian Trail. And it used to, this is before Stratton was developed. And, you know, we, a bunch of kids and the counselors would go up uh, on these trails for a several days, you know, camp out, uh, and, uh, that became Stratton. And I mean, that landscape, uh, is wonderful. <clears throat> so yes, the answer, a long answer to your short question <laughs> is yes, I miss skiing 
um, in the east. But I've got to tell you, there are other places, other parts of the world to ski also where uh, that are just spectacular. We can get into that in a while. But I, uh, I at this point in my skiing career, uh, it's not just the skiing itself, but it's the skiing experience that uh, can be very satisfying and can keep uh, the passion going. Uh, you know, the, you know, some packaged experiences like skiing from Refugio to Refugio in the Dolomites, the Italian Alps, uh, you know, it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And we, I did that with my wife a few years ago. So, yeah, um, you know, wherever, wherever you can go, if you can find snow or a place to, to ski, why not? So you've had a tremendous range of experiences here, John, and this is sounds like it's been a big part of your life. Skiing has been a big part of your life for going on seven decades now. And, and, and it, was, it was clearly something that you developed a passion for early on and meant a lot to you. Let's talk about senior skiing. When did you found the site and why? Well, um, I found this, I started thinking about the site in, or I started thinking about a way to bring older skiers together. Um, yeah, probably in the earlier part of the 2000s. I, in 2000, um, I had the opportunity to retire and we moved from Manhattan. My wife and I moved from Manhattan to Park City. And that first season I skied, I think, 145 days. Amazing. I know. Incredible. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, you're, you're right there. You, you know, mm-hmm. Conditions look good. You do a little. I was doing consulting at the time, you do a little bit of consulting work. You know, my clients have always known that I'm not available on a good powder day. Uh, <laughs> they shouldn't ask any questions. And you just get in the car, you drive a couple of miles, and you're there. Uh, right. You know, but what I noticed, you know, is that on the chairlifts, midweek especially, everybody was my age, you know. Uh, or older, or thereabouts, you know, and, you know, so I realized that this is, you know, older skiers are a phenomenon, uh, and, you know, but there was no community other than a highly pixelated community over the hill gang, or different, different uh, little groups, the wild old bunch at, at Alta. You know, different groups at individual ski areas more or less informally uh, gathered. And uh, I realized that perhaps what was needed would be some kind of a, of a community, a center, you know, a gravitational pull for, uh, for these older skiers. You know, so what I did is I started asking people questions. I basically used the chairlift or the gondola as a focus group session. 
you know, and started to develop this idea uh, of having a, an online, a website basically dedicated to older skiers. Uh, and then oh, sometime 2012, you know, I'm writing notes all the time, make, you know, developing plans. And, but I didn't want to do this on my own. So I spoke with um, a, an old friend, the college uh, buddy, who after college had worked for Ski Magazine or Skiing Magazine, Mike McGinn. Uh, you know, for a couple of years, then he went on to get a PhD and to do other things. Uh, and so Mike and I uh, put our heads together. He agreed to join me in this venture and, uh, and we launched it. And it was launched in 2014. So help us understand this demographic here, John. It, 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 it's, you've made the comment to me that America as a society has made older folks invisible. And, and you think that's a big mistake and there's a lot of opportunities for the ski industry in particular in, in addressing those folks and realizing what an important part of skiing that they are. So help us understand just how big is this demographic and, and how important are they to American skiing and, and the cultural fabric of it? Good, a very good question. <clears throat> According to NSAA, at least as of know, three or four years ago, about one in five U.S. skiers was over the age of 52. So that's 20%. You're standing in line, you look around, and you know, one in five people should be over the age of 52. When you're 52... Uh, you don't consider yourself older or a, a senior. Uh, uh, but then as you advance in age, you get up into your 60s, you're still physically uh, able to do everything. And, you know, you're enjoying the slopes. When you, when you hit 70 or your mid-70s, things do begin to slow down a little bit. But people are still passionate about skiing. Now, on the flip side of this is that we live in a youth-oriented culture. Uh, you know, America has always, <clears throat> maybe not always, but is generally youth-oriented. When in the 1960s, there was a phrase, um, you know, don't trust anyone over 30. Mm -hmm. You know, and... I remember one time being involved in a project. Uh, it was a film of 30 people over or under 30. It was profiling 30 people who were under the age of 30 who had accomplished an awful lot in that short period of time. We are a youth-oriented culture. Uh, but the older, it, when it comes to skiing, there's a perception that I've learned exists among some ski areas that older skiers, and they may be looking at 
much older people, people who are in their late 70s and in their 80s, who pack their own lunch, bring it to the lodge, maybe buy a cup of, of coffee and sit there and take up space uh, and, you know, have a season's pass. So the area is not making very much generating revenue based on that population. That's a misperception. I mean, that part of the audience does exist, but uh, through our reader surveys, we've learned that our population, maybe not in their, the ones in their 80s, because that begins to thin, that herd, the herd begins to thin out as you get older, but people who are in their 60s and in their 70s spend a lot of money on pursuing skiing. Many, you know, two-thirds of our audience is financially independent. Many people have homes at or near ski areas. Uh, on average, they ski, see the last survey, I think, was 33 days per season compared to the national average of 6.5 days per season. So a lot of time on the hill. Uh, I don't have the figures in front of me, Stuart, but I can, I, I do have a breakdown of just how much our readers, respondents to surveys, you know, over 3,000 respondents at a time, uh, report that they have spent in a season on skiing. And I think there's about 10 or 15% who spend over $10,000 a year. I think it averages out to the, you know, the bulk of them spending around three to five. And then there's a segment that's in the five to seven, you know, $7,000 a year figure. That's on trips and equipment and gifts, ski-related gifts for their adult children and their grandchildren. Uh, so this is, this is an audience that has economic viability and strength. In terms of numbers, it's not as large as uh, the younger audience, obviously, because there's a lot more people who are boarding and skiing, uh, who are younger, who are in their 20s, you know, teens, 20s, 30s, 40s. But there's a lot of pressure on those people uh, when it comes to managing a family, managing a career, paying a mortgage if they have a mortgage, uh, all the expenses associated with developing a family and, and supporting a family and not all of those people have the resources to go out and enjoy the hill as much as the older population that's put in the time and has accumulated the wealth um, and, you know, and skis or boards a hell of a lot more than this younger cohort. So there's, there's an opportunity there. It's also, I, I'm, I'm speaking for the, an opportunity for the ski industry. And there's also a, a history. You know, this population 
has supported, has basically grown up with the American ski industry. People who started skiing in the, maybe the 40s, the 50s, as I did, uh, and continue through the decades supporting the industry, even when, when the industry was flat or having difficulties. The passion that's been driving this cohort for such a long time uh, has helped to sustain and keep the ski industry afloat at certain times. Right now, the ski industry is doing extremely well with, <laughs> right. yeah, with shifts in how, uh, how it's structured and, and the bundling of, of passes and everything. Uh, some of the skiers are doing well. But anyways, I guess the point that I'm making is that this is a segment of the market that deserves attention. And uh, because there's, there is affluence there and uh, spending power and spending. You know, so it's, it's an economic driver, uh, but it is, it's, largely ignored in my IMHO, in my humble opinion. Uh, it is largely ignored by uh, the ski industry. Yeah, John, it's really interesting when, when you break that down, because when you say one in five skiers is over the age of 52, Correct. according to the NSAA, there's approximately 10 million active snow sports participants in America. And yeah. doing my rough math off the top of my head, that's about 2 million senior skiers. And yet you made the point to me, the manufacturers do not design any equipment specifically for this demographic. And there's a huge missed opportunity there. And, and I think there's some precedent within the, the industry, within the uh, equipment manufacturing industry to change that. So break that down for us. W what's missing here and what's the opportunity for the skier equipment manufacturers to, to better address this group? And, and which, as you said, has money to spend, has time to ski, has a passion for it that, by the way, they're very likely to pass down to their grandkids and to these younger generations if you give them the tools to do it. Exactly. So, you know, there are, there are skis every year or every, at the beginning of every season with the help of uh, Jackson Hogan of realskiers.com. <clears throat> we publish a list of the ski product, the skis that are more suitable, most suitable for older skiers. And they, you know, they tend to have um, uh, a flexible shovel, a flexible tail. They have greater flex to this, the, the ski product itself. So what it does, what that does is by not using a stiff, a stiff ski, um, it allows the older skier to engage more readily in carving turns mm. and to uh, not use as much energy. So for an older skier, you know, you can get tired more quickly than a younger skier. You know, youth has the advantage of physical endurance, 
doesn't have wisdom. <laughs> but you know, as they say, youth is, is wasted on the young. You know, a more flexible ski product is easier to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, it engages more readily with the snow. And so that mere fact, and there's a lot, there's a lot of product that is already out there that has those characteristics. But uh, the, you know, the ski manufacturers could very easily develop a sales sheet for ski shop personnel to orient them to those particular products and to explain to the older customer why this ski is, might be better for him than another product. You know, it could be as simple as using existing skis to, uh, but just providing communications to the sales personnel that would help them explain the difference between different ski products so that they could help their older customers. But nobody does that. Hmm. That's, a, that's probably the easiest thing that could be done. Or a sticker that would go on an existing ski saying that it's you know, a senior, for senior skiers. Uh, you know, that, that kind of thing could be done. It's not. You know, and if you ask people about it, uh, they will tell you, as was pointed out in the recent article in the New York Times about uh, marketing to older, marketing products in general to older people, is that people do not want to admit that they're old. Mm. So they don't want to necessarily be positioned as being elderly. They they would much prefer to be positioned and have the self-perception of being younger. So there's this balance that occurs in the marketing of products in general uh, to not focus on a person's age, but to focus more on the aura around the product that might appeal to that person's age. You know, it's an art. It gets into dealing with marketing art, artistry. Uh, however, I think that um, some people who subscribe to that perspective are missing the point that as uh, some people age, especially skiers, they develop a pride in still being on the hill and still being able to do things that defy popular perceptions. So they become proud of their senior skier status. And, you know, marketers could address <clears throat> the, uh, that market with products either that are just communicated to the older participant or some that are designed specifically for the older participant, they would do very well. Uh, Or as some ski manufacturers did when the women's uh, products were introduced, 
they just take existing product and change the cosmetics on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, there's there's an opportunity uh, to develop an appeal to a segment of the market that would benefit from either their marketing pitch or the redesigned product that would help people be able to go out there, ski more easily, and spend more time on the hill in a given day. You know, John, you hit on some really interesting points there. I, I think one thing that I pulled out of that was this difference between your age, the age you are, and and the age that you perceive yourself to be, right? And we talked about this a little bit before the call. And what, what's always appealed to me about skiing is is that fact that you can do it for most of your life, pretty much your whole life. You can continue to do it at a high level uh, as you advance in age. And and that's always really reconfirmed my commitment to it because I, I feel like it's a, it's a lifetime pursuit and it's something I'll always be able to do. And it's something that I don't have to worry about aging out of uh, at least anytime soon. So, so just talk about that difference between perceived age and actual age and how that plays out on the ski slopes. Well, <clears throat> you know, we do, we have, we have our chronologic age. That's the actual age. Uh, and then studies, in, you know, conducted by the American Association of Retired Persons, AARP, uh, back in the 1970s, uh, showed that uh there was a 20-year gap between the chronologic age of its members and their perceived age. And perceived age uh, is what really determines an individual's behaviors, how you, things that you purchase, you know, maybe the movies that you go to see, the books that you read, uh, you know, all kinds of things, because it's how we perceive ourselves to be, which is what drives how we make decisions about how we'll spend money, the kinds of things we'll do with our leisure time, et cetera, et cetera. And what's curious and I found surprising is that the few times that we have asked similar questions in our reader surveys, um, you know, again, you know, about a 3,000 or more respondents, their actual age, chronologic age, was just shy of 70. Perceived age, because we asked, how, do you, how old do you feel after a good day on the slopes? Yeah. It was that same magic number, 20 years younger. Wow. So if you're 70, you know, and you, you feel that you're 50, you know, you're not going to be out uh, buying, you know, sh- shopping or thinking about a wheelchair. You're going to be thinking about a new pair of skis or, <laughs> you know, you know a, a pair of ski pants or parka or whatever it happens to be. You know, so we ask, uh, we ask our readers, what are you going to buy? What do you, you know, what do you plan, intend to purchase the wording? over the next two years. And the first thing that always comes up is, you know, 
long underwear, you know, railing. Uh, right. And then it's boots. And then it's skis. And um, you know, so people, as you know, Stuart, many people will blame their golf game, their poor golf game on their clubs. Right. So you get a new pair of clubs or a new set of clubs. Yeah, and a lot of people will blame their skiing abilities on their skis. Uh, <laughs> they're probably better off using their existing equipment and taking the money and buying some lessons. You know, uh, but there are, you know, there's ski equipment that does make it easier to ski. So for older, for older participants in the sport, uh, there are three technologies that help them stay in the game regardless of their chronologic age or their perceived age. You know, there's the technology associated with the equipment itself, mm-hmm. you know, that makes it easier. A lot of people, shorter skis, you know, when I was, when I was young, uh, you know, you, the proper height of a pair of skis was to put your arm up. I've got 36 <laughs> inch arms, 36 inch sleeves, put your arm up and the tip of the ski would go into the palm of your hand. You know? <laughs> and, you know, tall skis and, you know, you'd, I, I'd strap on, uh, you know, marker long thongs on a you know, turntable heel with a with their release, whatever that I forget the toe what the toe was, but yeah, they were um, you know different kind of equipment. You know. But the equipment has changed. The materials have changed. The skis are lighter weight. The bindings are uh, release better now. So the equipment makes it easier to ski. So that's one of the technologies. Then you have the ski area technologies, you know, mm-hmm. the snow grooming and the snow making and, you know, faster detachable chair you know, lifts, uh, heated seats and some lifts, you know, that orange bubble that comes down. <laughs> yep. So it makes, it makes the technology, the RFID cards, it makes the whole thing so much easier to get into and to do. So you've got that technology. Then you have medical technology, Hmm. you know, um, orthopedic implants and, you know, uh, stents, heart stents, and all kinds of things in medicine that keep people active and going for a longer period of time and where they, you know, they can continue to be doing the things that they, you know, 20 years ago, 50 years ago would never have been able to do. Do you know the, the name Lloyd Lambert, uh, Stuart? Mm, no. Lloyd Lambert was a, uh, a ski journalist in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back in the day, back in the 60s, Lloyd Lambert had a, uh, a service where, he had skiers, you know, at different areas around the Northeast 
and he had a radio show and they would call in with the conditions that day from each area. This is long, this is pre-internet. And he had a column and all kinds of things. And he started in 1970, he started uh, the 70 plus ski club, which still exists. It's run by his, uh, his son, Richard, or his grandson, Richard Lambert. Uh, it's a, like a travel ski club for people who are 70 and older. They go all over the world on ski trips. But there was, a, there was an article in the New York Times in, uh, in, I think it was 1970, 73, I forget, about Lloyd Lambert, who had just turned 70 and had started the 70 plus ski club for people who were 70 and older. And the, the Times reporter marveled at the idea that these people were skiing when they were so old, right. engaged in this sport. I mean, it, was, it was insanity. Right. <laughs> well, in the intervening 50 years, all of these technologies have come to play, you know, the equipment, the improvement in equipment, the improvement at the ski areas themselves, the improvement in, uh, in hospitals and in, in medicine in general, they've all converged to create a older, a class of older skiing and snowboarding participants. And when I say skiing, I'm, I, I refer to all of the unmechanized or non-mechanized mechanized uh, snow sports. So, you know, snowshoeing, cross country, even fat biking, uh, fat tire biking. You know, older people have the ability now, the strength, the everything, and especially the finances to be able to go out and do this and do, it, uh, do a lot of it uh, and to continue doing it. Uh, I interviewed Klaus Obermeier a few years ago, Klaus, who started the Obermeier line of clothing, he basically, he, he was the first one to develop the, uh, the down-filled parka. That was one of his innovations. Klaus just turned, I think, 99 or something a few years ago. He, I, and I think he lives in Aspen. He said he finds, in his Austrian accent, he finds it easier to ski than to walk. Oh, wow. You know, uh, you know, these are the much older people, but Junior Benoist, who ran the ski school for many years at Snowbird, on his 80th birthday, his son and he and some others helicoptered up to Pipeline, which is on, on Mount Superior, it's a right. cool war there, and he skied Pipeline Amazing. on his 80th birthday, right? And, and uh, George Jednikoff, who uh, we haven't heard from in a couple of, of seasons, but he's the guy from Southern California who on his 100th birthday, uh, which is, I think, in June or July of a few years ago, Snowbird opened one of the upper lifts so he could take a few runs. You know, Ski Utah makes a big deal, made a big deal of that. I skied with George uh, two seasons ago, or maybe three seasons ago. He was 103 years old. Amazing. 
you know, and the powder was up to his boots and he was great. <laughs> so, so John, it, it's, uh, it's interesting, you, you know, it, it's a sport that technology, all these technological advancements have come together and made it possible. This right. is a demographic that have all the things you need to go skiing. They have time, they have money, they have the passion for it. I want to get into this a little bit. And I'm really curious about your perception of this and what you hear from your members is just the solitary effects of skiing, because I think it's, it's fashionable to say, oh, skiing doesn't matter. It's a hobby. I disagree. I think that we all need things, especially now with the world turned upside down, that make us feel good, that give us this purpose, that that bring us together in social settings, that bring us together with the outdoors. And, and I'll never forget this. I When I was in college, I had an abnormal psychology class, and the professor was talking about, and the, well, the textbook was talking about the large percentage of people who die within one year of retirement because their identity was so wrapped up in their work that when they retired, they didn't have anything to do. And whatever latent pathologies were laying around in them took over and it was the end of them. So can you just talk a little bit about the importance of skiing as something to give purpose to your life, to bring community to your life and, and around senior skiing as well and the community you've developed of this sport to the older population who, who maybe is done working and doesn't have that uh, identity that they've associated themselves with for decades in their career. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting topic that you raise because as, as skiers age, some of them age out of the sport leaving those who stay in the sport lonely, looking for someone or some people with whom they can ski. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, I mean, you're right about people who retire and that's, you know, their, their identity is wrapped up with their careers and then they tragically die within that year. The same thing, uh, the same phenomenon occurs with people who have been married for very long periods of time. Usually when one spouse dies, the other spouse uh, will pass away within a matter of months. Probably mm -hmm. similar dynamics, psychodynamics uh, going on there. Um, but as, you know, as we age, uh, in the world of skiing, people become, uh, I don't know, I'm not quite sure what the right word is, but they become very concerned about having, about not skiing alone. You know, first of all, when you ski alone, you know, there, and you're older, you know, you're at risk of, there's a safety risk there. You're much better off skiing with somebody, but that somebody may be hard to find. And one of the recurrent themes that we keep on, I keep on uh, reading in comments, and we do articles about this, is that, you know, somebody, people are looking for somebody else with whom they can go skiing. You know, uh, Harriet Wallace, who's one of our, contributors recently did an article about finding people 
to ski with mm-hmm. you know, when you're older. Yeah, and you know, she mentioned that you know, there's you go to an area and possibly go and join the you know, take a tour of the mountain with with the ski ambassador. And there you, and there's other people who are your your contemporaries, you can see how they ski, maybe strike up a conversation and take some runs in the afternoon with them. Um, you know, there are these little pixelated uh, ski clubs that exist in many uh, at many resorts where you might be able to find somebody who is a contemporary that you can ski with. Uh, we're, you know, as a publication, SeniorSkiing.com is looking into, you know, perhaps creating some kind of a bulletin board or some, some resource that will help people uh, pick up other skiers, you know, to with whom they can spend the day or a couple of days. You know, I I find that on the chairlift, I often will, you know, if I'm skiing alone, I'll find people to ski with on the chairlift, especially if on a place like Alta. Yeah, I know Alta extremely well, like the back of my hand. And a lot of there's a lot of people who are there who don't really know it as well. Hmm. Well, I ask you want to take a few runs. I, I can show you some places. You know, you strike up a conversation and you have a an afternoon uh, friendship, uh, as it were. But it's an issue. It's, it's an issue as you get older because your ski buddies, so some will pass away, some become ill. You know, some finally get pulled into that gravitational vortex of the spouse who wants to spend time in Mexico or in Florida for the winter. Uh, So, you know, it becomes, it does become an issue. It is an issue. What do you, what do you do as you age to find people to ski with? And, um, you know, I've often thought it would be a great service if one of, if Rosignol or Solomon or one of the, the bigger, better known companies just had a, would put up a flag or a, a place at each ski area where older skiers could congregate at 10 in the morning or 11 in the morning and just meet each other and go for a couple of runs. Something as simple as that. I've discussed it with a couple of companies. Yeah, oh, what a good idea. But, you know, it doesn't go anyplace. It hasn't so far. Maybe through this podcast, someone will pick up on that, on that notion. But that's what we need. We need a way to connect. And that's what SeniorSkiing.com is all about. It's about connecting uh, people who are of similar ages uh, and who have uh, a similar passion or interest, and that is, you know, snow sports uh, and, you know, connecting to a community where every couple of weeks there's eight to 10 original articles that look at different aspects of the sport through the goggles of the older participant. 
So, so let's talk about that newsletter, John, and then I want to get your takes on a few current issues in skiing. But uh, how do folks join your community? Because as I said at the beginning, you've, you've created this enormous worldwide community that's focused on exactly all these issues you've been talking about. So how do they join your email list and what do they get when they join it? So it's easy to join. All they do is go to www.seniorsplural.skiing.com. And uh, there are, in the upper right uh, section of the homepage that will pop up, you can click on that and you'll be able to for, to enter your email address. And I think that we ask if you're over the age of 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to. I think we still do. You do. Uh, <laughs> okay. And then... Uh, you, know, you click on that, and you're you're added to the list. And then every two weeks, you will receive a package of uh, of these eight to ten original articles, which include uh, each time it includes a column that I write called Short Swings, which gives a generally a point of view on some issue or issues as well as a compilation of news from the industry and little odd curiosities that I think will interest the readers. Uh, People seem to like that. And then uh, Herb Stevens, who is the skiing weatherman, does a weather report on what's happening around the United States and what to expect in terms of weather. Uh, and then there's you know, a variety of, of different articles by different contributors. So that's basically how people sign up. We don't bug you. We don't bug subscribers. We don't sell the list. Uh, we do, from time to time, uh, advertisers will arrange to send out an email blast about their products uh, to, to the audience, you know, the entire subscriber list that doesn't happen that frequently, but it does, uh, it does happen. And, and, you know, readers seem to like that, uh, as well. Uh, so that, that's basically, you know, how, how it works. People can go to the site at any time and access, uh, articles that are going to be distributed on that every other Friday, or they can access any of the archives. And these are archives going back to 2014. I think, I'm not sure of the exact number, but I don't know, 1,500, 2,000 articles can be accessed about Mm -hmm. destinations, about uh, equipment, about instruction, uh, about recovery from injury, you know, physical therapy approaches uh, to uh, getting over, you know, a hip replacement or a knee replacement or other things. Um, you know, when we look at destinations, uh, we try to look at factors that are of interest to the older skier. So I encourage people writing about destinations when I do it myself, you know, to talk about 
the lot, what I call the lot to lift access. So mm-hmm. What do you have to do to get from the parking lot to the lift? You know, there's yeah. some ski areas where you can get, you know, if you're older, you can get pretty exhausted uh, getting from one place to the other. Or the bathroom situation, you know, most, most ski lodges, you enter on one level and then you got to go <laughs> down one or two flights of stairs and then, you know, they use the toilet and then back up again. Right. Older skiers use toilets. You know, and, and what's the quality? What's the quality of the toilets? I mean, I, at Powder Mountain the other day, you know, I had to go into a stall sideways. It was so small. But if, but if you're at Snow Basin, uh, you use their lodges, and it's like you're walking into a Four Seasons hotel. Gold-plated fixtures and everything you know it's 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 remarkable it's 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 quite luxe so you know these are the kinds of things that we look at one of the big issues for older skiers and we look at this when it comes to the areas and just separately not just on destination reports is the whole area safety issue uh this is this is top of mind for our audience getting hit by another skier, getting hit by a boarder, uh, getting wiped out. It happens a lot. And, you know, it's a big, big issue that is sort of the dark underside of the ski industry, the ski area industry, that, you know, accidents and deaths, there's no reporting no required reporting mechanism for that. There is an aviation and amateur aviation, you know, when this crashes, uh, you know, there are in the roads, the American road system, when this crashes and deaths, it gets reported, but you know, ski areas are basically a network of highways, the trails and slopes, uh, but nobody, you know, has to have a license to ski. They, they shouldn't, but you have to have a license to drive. There's no stop signs. There's slow signs. There's patrol, but nobody's giving out tickets. Uh, so, you know, safety uh, is safety on the slopes. As you get older, becomes a big, big issue. Uh, and, uh, you know, we hear it from our readers all the time. And we talk about it. We report it. A few years ago, we started a feature uh, called Incidents and Accidents, where people could report near misses or the accident itself. And, uh, you yeah. know, it's interesting that Vail Resorts, as much as VR is criticized, uh, they seem to be making a really good effort to address the safety, the on-slope safety issue uh, with signage and safety. There's ski patrol, but they also have safety patrols. The yellow jackets. The yellow jackets, right. Uh, for a while at the base of Vail, itself, they were reporting, they had an electric sign that reported the number of tickets that have been pulled that day for reckless skiing, because of reckless skiing. 
Yeah, they're they're communicating. I mean, I a few weeks ago at at the you know parks at PCMR Park City Mountain Resort, uh, I noticed that there was sign on trail signage. Not only slow, we see that a lot at, towards the bottom of the mountains where people are following from different area, from different trails, but uh, they had signage that said rest area hmm. right on the trail. So, you know, people could, if they wanted to take a rest, they could congregate at one place that was out of the, uh, you know, out of the flow, the traffic flow. Uh, there, I think Vale is, VR is a good place to look to for safety innovations. But, you know, no, uh, no state in any of the ski states requires any reporting of accidents or of deaths. And they're occurring all the time. And, you know, some areas, uh, you know, Deer Valley being one of them, tend to overgroom the, uh, the trails. Some of those trails get slicked pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, that creates, you know, you can't really set an edge and then you get a lot of people who aren't, uh, who don't have the skills, but they have that equipment that makes it easier to see, <laughs> right? You know, right. So things happen. People hit trees. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, awful things occur. I mean, you know, Stein Erickson, the beginning of his end was when he got hit by a skier at Deer Valley. Right. right. So yeah, the the newsletter is really well done, John, and and you cover all those Thank issues you. you just mentioned, and and you let me slip past the, uh, the are you over fifty question. So I appreciate that, and and I can vouch for the quality of it. So I will include a link to that in the newsletter article that accompanies this podcast at stormskiing.com for those of you interested in signing up for that. I just want to get your take real quick here, John, on a couple of current issues, and and as someone who's been skiing for seven decades, I, I want to start with lift tickets and passes, which is something I write about. And this was actually a fact that was first brought to me by one of the articles in one of your newsletters is, is the, the top walk-up day ticket price at any U.S. ski area this year hit $269. That's at Steamboat Resort. Right. And there are many others that are over 200 right. So we've seen this tremendous rise in the cost of day tickets. And at the same time, we have seen an unbelievable decline in the price of a season pass. And not only that, but a season pass for decades was very expensive and it was good at one mountain. Now you buy an $800 Epic pass and it's good at 75 mountains or whatever the number is. So, so I just want your take on that whole landscape of, of shifting to an expensive, almost unattainable for 99% of the population day lift ticket and a very cheap season pass and how that's changed skiing for the better or worse. Yeah, you know, it, it has changed skiing for both better and worse, <laughs> uh, really. Uh, you know, my wife was in the uh, the office at Alta picking something up, and we were leaving, and there was a guy there purchasing uh, two half-day tickets for one for himself, one for his son, Half-day tickets, this is at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, for 135 or 140 bucks each. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you know, it's insane. But, you know, some people, that doesn't matter. You know, right. uh, 
you know, that that's chunk change. It, it really, they don't even think twice about it. Uh, I am happy in some ways that the cost of skiing has become more accessible to more people through the use of bundled passes, you know, the Epic and, and the Icon pass. I bought an Epic pass this year. Um, it still costs a lot of money at many independent areas to purchase a season's pass, uh, you know, 1,200, I mean, some places. What is it at Stowe now? Is it? What's an Epic pass? So, oh, it is. It, that's an epic. Yes, yeah. I don't know. Some place I was was a sugar. Some place I thought was seemed to be still very steep to me. I, I, yeah, J, J, So in the east, your know, J Peak uh, is between eight hundred and a thousand, depending on when you buy it. Uh, Bromley is still very expensive. It's around a thousand, um, and then you have your big sort of alpha resorts out west: Telluride, Jackson Hole. Aspen, Deer Valley, where they're getting two thousand to three thousand for that's, those passes. Okay, so that's that's where it, I used to, I, I used to teach in the ski school. I used to teach kids at Deer Valley, and uh, uh, that always uh, you know, the cost of skiing there, the cost of doing anything there, uh, you know, surprised me at the time. But that was you know eighteen, fifteen, eighteen years ago, and now of course it's growing. Right. Uh, so back to your Back to your question, though, Stuart. <clears throat> so I think it's I think it's good that the cost of skiing has come down. But for some people, like I've got a guy who I I train with at the gym. He told me yesterday he's a boarder, and he told me yesterday he can't, he can't afford any of this. He really? loves to go snowboarding, uh, but he cannot afford either the equipment or, you know, to go buy a season's pass or anything else, you know, personal circumstances are such that he just doesn't, he can't afford it. So he's priced out and that, that disturbs me that there are people who are priced out, uh, you know, and the areas do try to make it better uh, in pricing for students, you know, youth and, increasingly less so for older people because it used to be that older people had all kinds of of deals uh, but that is disappearing unfortunately although powder mountain if you're over 75 uh, you don't pay to ski uh, but you know it's that's been shifting as Altera and Vale resorts buy up these uh, in powder they buy up other areas and they change, as you know, they change the pricing dynamics. Now, the downside of all of this is what we keep on reading about and you report on and others report on. Uh, and that is that the crowds are insane. I think you have written that everyone can now afford a season's pass because of right. the inexpensive prices. And the... The crowds, at least up at, at Park City Mountain Resort uh, during the Christmas, New Year's holiday, were insane, mm -hmm. insane. 
Yeah. There was, uh, and some of the lifts were not operating because they were broken down. There wasn't enough snow on some of the trails. So unable to disperse the crowds across the terrain uh, and the, uh, and the, the lift lines were long and crowded and the, you know, people were not wearing masks mm. because of, you know, safety concern for a lot of people, but not enough, obviously. Uh, you know, and and uh, the Vail resorts require proof of vaccination to enter a day lodge where you can sit down and have, you know, use the cafeteria and have, and have something to eat. And at one of the day lodges that I went to on the Park City side, um, there was a line, you know, to check your vaccination credentials. There was a line that went out the lodge through where the skis were, were racked out mm-hmm. into the slope. I mean, oh there, there must have been 125 people in that line. Unbelievable. And then, you know, when I, and I stupidly waited in the line. And then when I got into the lodge itself, I realized it was another door. They had already at another lodge had placed a sticker on my Epic Pass indicating that I had my vaccinations. Mm. Uh, and there was one person, <laughs> one oh, person checking these credentials. So, yeah, and I understand that there's a there's staffing shortages, uh, but, you know, there's, I used to work for a Fortune 100. I was an executive at Fortune 100 Corporation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a difference between what is said by the CEO or what is issued, information issued publicly or what's in the annual report and mm-hmm. what happens at the, uh, on the ground, you know, and it's, you can make your your organization sound and look good, but it's really the execution on the ground where you know where uh, you know, whether where where you get your score, and you know right now uh, you know I don't know about today. I'm going to go up to Park City today and and ski, uh, and we'll I'll see what what the crowds are like, hopefully they thinned out. Boy, during the holidays, the downside of the inexpensive pass was evident in those crowds. And and aside from your on-the-ground experience, just what have you been hearing from your members? Is Vail losing people on the ground? Do you think this is going to be a big problem for them if they don't get their act together? What, what, uh, we're getting comments, you know, uh, a lot of the comments have come in from uh, Eastern uh, readers. You know, for, I, get, I don't remember. I guess, is it Okemo? And I forget where. Okemo, Mount Snow, Stowe, Hunter. Yeah, oh, Hunter. Wildcat yeah. Atatash. Right, right, right. Yeah, uh, people, well, you, know, you, you don't really know what the pulse of the audiences because I hear you know in comments and in personal emails that I'll get from individuals who are pissed at what's going on does that is that representative of the entire audience 
I can't say, but when you look at what's going on at Stevens Pass, mm-hmm. you know, up in Washington, another Vail uh, resort entity, where 20,000 people signed a petition, uh, 20,000 people in five days mm-hmm. signed a petition to get 60% of the cost of that pass refunded to them because 60% of the area and of the terrain and of the lifts, or however they calculate it, uh, are closed. And apparently Vail, according to their the wording on their uh, petition, Vail was aware of this when they took their money for for the passes. You know, that if that is valid, that is that does not reflect good corporate behavior. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, there's going to be a reckoning. I I think that part of the reckoning is that uh, the big mega resorts, popular as destinations wonderful to ski at. Uh, uh, There may be some, if not a comeuppance, there may be a shift to the smaller independent uh, ski areas. You know, if I wanted to take my family and grandchildren on a ski vacation, you know, and I... and I really put some thought into it, I would want to select a medium-sized area where there's accommodations at the base of the area, where it funnels down, all the trails and everything funnel down into one central area where kids aren't going to get lost. Um, and where it's not, I'm not going to be priced out, you know, uh, so, like going to Durango, what's that? What's the area called in Durango? Purgatory. Going to Pur- Purgatory is a good example of that kind of a ski area. Uh, yeah, when when Snow Basin, which is vast and does not funnel down into one place, but when they get their Club Med built in. 2024 when it opens up or whatever they've said, uh, that would be a good place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Powder Mountain does not funnel down to one place. That's spread all <laughs> over the place. But, you know, that wouldn't be a bad place also. I mean, you know, New England ski areas, you know, smaller areas. I think this that Indy Pass, uh, he's on to, you know, something. I think that especially as we get older, uh, there may be a, it may trend this way, I don't know, but I could see how it could trend towards the lesser known or less popular, less uh, crowded ski area becoming the destinations of choice. Yeah, I, I think that's right, John. And I think especially as Indie Pass, as you mentioned, unites those on one common platform, that becomes much more, it's a vast world and it becomes easier for folks to understand. There's one more dynamic that I really want to get your take on here. And um, it's going on, 
outside of the control of Vale or Altera or anyone else. And that's the fact that Utah is just exploding. It, it, it the, the population is exploding. And I'm not telling you anything you don't already know here, but skiing is becoming more accessible because of these multi-passes. And yet Utah only has 15 ski areas. That's tied for 12th in the country with Montana for most number of ski areas in a state. Right. Last year, the state posted record skier visits. I believe it was over 5 million visits. At some point, something has to break. And there is a new resort coming online in a couple of years called Mayflower, right next to Deer Valley. So so just talk about that dynamic a little bit. And, and, and what is the answer here? Because as skiing gets cheaper, as more people move to Utah, as, as social media makes it more apparent how good Utah skiing is compared to everywhere else in the country, you just get this influx of people. And as you mentioned earlier, it's super easy to get from Salt Lake Airport to Snowbird. I can be there in 45 minutes. So just talk about that whole dynamic of, 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 of Utah and, and what the answer is to, to how you can take some pressure off of this amazing ski scene that everyone is increasingly aware is amazing. Yeah, it's too much of a good thing, right? Right. Uh, that's that's basically what it is. By the way, Mayfair, I have my. I, I know they're investing in the Mayfair. I have my doubts about that. It's it is. Let me just think. I think it faces east. It's an east facing, east east facing uh, terrain, and you know uh, that doesn't bode well. Uh, you know, and a lot of these plays in, uh, in ski areas are really less about the skiing and more about the real estate around them. There's also another area going up uh, near Ogden, which is going to be a, the Utah version of the Yellowstone Club, a private ski area uh, that is headed by Bob Wheaton, from, who used to be the GM at Deer Valley. Um, there's, you know, some controversy, some pushback from locals about that. Utah is amazing, uh, what's happening here. I, I've lived here since 2000. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we first moved here, we moved to Park City. Then we moved into Salt Lake City. Before, before 2000, I, my wife and I you know, raised our family in you know, in one location, we never moved any place, right? Uh, or hardly moved at all. And and since two thousand, it seems like every five years, you know, we've renovated a home, built a home, done something. Uh, but you know, and, and then at one point, I was I had a place in Salt Lake, and we built a gorgeous modern home next to Capitol Reef National Park in this remarkable magical landscape. But um, uh, and then you know, I was also had a place in uh, uh, in the east, and you know, I've just moved back. We've just moved back here uh, permanently uh, before Thanksgiving, and so I was not here for eighteen months. And to come back to Salt Lake and to see the construction. There was, you know, I, I was in Shanghai in the 1990s, I think. Mm-hmm. And the construction there was just like, you know, the cranes were every place. Every right. place. I mean, you don't see the cranes here because the buildings aren't, you know, they're generally like six-story buildings, something like that. Right. But they are every place, 
every place. There's there you know, are apartments going up and up and up. I mean, it is just remarkable. So it's it's causing congestion. You know, I mean, driving around New York, it's you know to get into the city from where we live. I mean, there's a lot of congestion and always construction. Well, now Salt Lake. Uh, if you're driving around downtown areas, there's congestion. There's a good road system here that is like almost a ring road, like 215 that goes around a portion of the city and, and I-15, which is a north-south route, and I-80, which east-west. So, you know, it, there's, good, there's good freeways that can, if you know how to use them, can speed up the process. But there are so many people. I mean, the restaurants, I mean, not that I'm using restaurants right now during COVID, but restaurants are packed. Uh, you know, you don't get reservations so easily. It's like, it's like Manhattan in some ways. Uh, it's not yeah. Manhattan. So, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and then this airport, which has expanded exponentially, uh, it's an international airport. <clears throat> and it's one of the great, assets of this area that, you know, 15 minutes from wherever you are in the Salt Lake Valley area, 15, 20 minutes, you're at an airport where you can go on a direct flight to Paris. Or, I don't mm-hmm. know about Tokyo. For a while, they were going to Tokyo. Um, wow. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it is remarkable, uh, the convenience. And as you said, Stuart, you know, you, you land, you land uh, at Salt Lake International, and 45 minutes later, you can be at the Bird or at Alta or at Park City. And a few years ago, to make that point, the ski areas were offering free skiing in the afternoon if you arrived in the morning, right? Wow. So you could, you know, arrive in the morning, get in, you know, rent a car or get in a shuttle, and, and you'd ski free that afternoon. That was, you know, a promotional deal uh, to prove or to make the point. But the downside of this is that Little Cottonwood Canyon and Big Cottonwood Canyon have become very congested with traffic. Uh, I mean, on Little Cottonwood is where Alta and Snowbird are. It's the, you know, it's 13 miles long or something. This the most avalanche prone uh, open road in uh, in North America hmm. uh, and Big Cottonwood has fewer avalanches but that's where uh, Brighton and Solitude are and you know and, and even you know long before all of these dynamics have converged in the ski industry on a decent powder day to get up Little Cottonwood Canyon to go to Alta or Snowbird you know you need to be there people would, would be there at 6.30 in the morning to get up the canyon, especially if it hadn't been plowed yet. And, you know, there's, there's bumper-to-bumper traffic. So as you're probably aware, now there's discussion about putting in a either a separate electric bus lane that would transport people up and relieve the congestion or putting in a tram that would go up Little Cottonwood Canyon at the cost, at considerable cost to taxpayers. And, you know, 
the ultimate goal here in in Utah is to create a ski circus like you have in Europe, and that is to have connected resorts uh, going from Little Cottonwood, from Snowbird and Alta, which are connected already, uh, to Brighton and Solitude, and you can ski from Alta to Brighton now. There's no lift service between them, but this private land that would, you know, it's not forest, it's not forest service land. So it's private land where they could develop that. And then to go over to Deer Valley, over Guardsman Pass, over to Deer Valley, and Deer Valley is already connected to Park City. So that would give uh, Utah this economic engine of two, four, uh, six ski areas all interconnected, you know, uh, it would, it'll cost a lot of money to do that, and it will create even more congestion. You know? And, and there, there's a study that I have someplace that was done in the, maybe the 1980s, I forget, in engineering, a report from different engineering uh, firms that uh, uh, talked about or gave recommendations or evaluating, it's a better term, the different ways of making these connections. Yeah, you could do it uh, by chairlift or by tram. Tram is, or gondola is what uh, they're looking at just to connect, you know, Salt Lake up to, uh, through Little Cottonwood Canyon. But that was, you know, chairs across these different canyons is one option to go from one place to the other. But there's a lot of resistance from different citizen-led organizations uh, such as Save Our Canyons uh, to that notion because it, the idea is that it would spoil the backcountry skiing scene. You know, the, there's a sensitivity to that. And, and one of the ideas, is that, as crazy as it might sound, which, pro, which costs a lot of money but probably would work very well, is to do the whole thing by subway mm. because there's an existing network of, um, of uh, mining uh, railroads under yeah. these mountains. And the Japanese group had, rec- had studied and recommended employing that, expanding it to connect underground one, t- one to the other. And indeed, when... Park City Mountain Resort opened in, I think, the early 70s. Uh, their first way, their first lift system was to use the old mining uh, railroad. I don't know, it's not railroads, but they have like a rail system, narrow gauge mm-hmm. uh, rail system to bring people up to a mine shaft. And then they would take an elevator up, and I think it brought them to the bottom. I can't remember the name of the lift right now. But if you go to the Park City Museum on Main Street, uh, they've got one of those cars, and they tell that whole story of people with their skis, you know, would go underground and then get off and then get up into a mining elevator and go up 
several stories and then get out, click on and go skiing. Yeah. So there, there's all kind, yeah, there's all kinds of ways of, of doing things. It's going to cost, no matter what they do, it's going to cost a lot of money. And, you know, I have uh, one of my friends who was in the uh, road, road engineering business in, uh, in Pennsylvania, who lives out here now, uh, he told me that he thinks that using taxpayer dollars to build a, uh, a tram that would go up Little Cottonwood Canyon is basically a form of corporate welfare. And that the, the corporations, Snowbird and Alta, they're the ones who should be you know, financing or at least participating in the financing of the transportation to get to feed their areas. It's a problem. It's a problem. And, and the problem is going to get, uh, it's not going to get any better soon. And, and the, the alternative or the part of the solution for individuals uh, to that issue is one, midweek, but midweek is now, midweek skiing is now being compromised by people working at home and taking off the time, uh, or to seek out the, uh, the areas that are not as close into Salt Lake City, like Snow Basin and Powder Mountain, um, you know, or I, I forget, there's another one up there, like, there's beaver beaver mountain and there's uh cherry peak and there's also yeah, sundance which everyone always overlooks everybody overlooks sundance it's sundance i haven't skied there in a few years sundance has some remarkably wonderful terrain yeah sundance is a, is a gem of a ski area mm-hmm. and i hope it doesn't go the same way that these <laughs> other areas are going but yeah to go up to uh, you know, these places near Logan, that's a real long drive. But the places near Ogden, Powder and... Oh, Nordic Valley. Nordic other, right? Valley, exactly. Nordic Valley, which they're trying to develop. They're, tr- they're trying to increase the size of that. I remember from a few years ago. I don't know what the status of that is now. <clears throat> but Snow Basin, uh, Powder, yeah, they're... They're very substantial ski areas. You just have to pick. You've got to pick your times uh, you know, when you go there because you don't want to go to Stowe Basin when there's not blue skies because that's that area because it's so uh, the way that it is. It's, it's got a lot of wide trails and slopes and you know, and trees, not a lot of trees in parts of it. Parts of it do have a lot of trees. So the light gets flat there very quickly. You have to pick your uh, conditions when you go there. But like a day like today, Bluebird, you know, uh, it would be a good day to ski at uh, Snow Basin. All right, John. Well, I, I know you're probably anxious to get out there in Park City and enjoy this Bluebird Day. I'm very jealous. I wish I was out in Utah to make some turns with you. Uh, but I cannot thank you enough for your time and perspective here. I think your site is really terrific. And uh, and I, I look forward to hopefully making some turns with you at some point. That, that sounds great. It would be the uh, uh, youth and old age uh, <laughs> skiing together. Stuart, this has been a pleasure. 
thank you very much for inviting me uh, to participate uh, on your your podcast. That's John Weisberg, co-founder, publisher, and editor of SeniorsSkiing.com. John, what you are doing to advocate for and unite our more experienced skiers is awesome. Great site and great newsletter, and I hope you keep it up for a very long time. Thank you all for listening. Coming your way very soon on the podcast are episodes with the leaders of the Highlands at Harbor Springs, Michigan, and Tamarack, Idaho. Beaver Mountain, Utah, Snow Ridge, New York, Big Sky, Montana, Summit at Snoqualmie, Washington, Solitude, Utah, and Little Switzerland, Wisconsin. And two more to mention that I just booked a very cool little spot, Mount Pleasant of Edinburgh in Pennsylvania, and one of my all-time favorites, Beaver Creek, Colorado, coming to the podcast very, very soon. Subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com and get them the moment they're live. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.